Hello and welcome to Counterculture. I'm Peter Whittle. Now, should we trust the BBC? Can we trust the BBC? There's no question that that is a particular issue that we've looked at many times on this programme. It's one that's bubbled again to the surface this year. In particular, in the recent weeks, we've had two high-profile examples, the first being a programme by the BBC Panorama on the NHS, and more recently, a monologue by Emily Maitlis, presenter of Newsnight, for which she was actually censored by the BBC. Is the BBC really, as it would have us believe, a force for good, or is it actually more damaging than anything? Now, I'm delighted to discuss this today. We have two guests, Charles Moore, who was editor of the Daily Telegraph, the Sunday Telegraph, and the Spectator. He now writes a column for the Daily Telegraph, and he is, of course, Margaret Thatcher's authorised biographer. And from the New Culture Forum, Rafe Hadelman Koo, historian and commentator. Welcome to you both. Um, Charles, thank you for joining us. You, um, what, is your, what was your uh, opinion of what Emily Maitlis did? I mean, did, did you see it as, a, as something which was a particularly blatant form of aggressive you know, partisanship or, or what? Well, perhaps not exactly partisan, but I didn't think it was a party-minded type thing, but an entirely blatant piece of editorialising and opinionising. So obviously it had no impartiality whatever. It entirely and deliberately affected BBC rules, and obviously um, she must have known that perfectly well. You, you, uh, this wasn't the first time, was it, with her on Newsnight? I think she did something quite similar about the COVID virus recently, you know, when it was about the inequalities of the COVID virus. Yes, um, but I wouldn't particularly single out uh, Emily Maitlis. Um, I mean, this was a very egregious example, but I think it happens a great deal um, uh, among many presenters. What's unusual about what Emily Maitlis did was that it's unarguable that it, that it broke the rules, and yet she did it. So why does we do we have a corporation which has these rules, and yet an important presenter feels able to do this? That seems an extraordinary situation to be in. It's more extraordinary than the position she took, I think. I mean, the position she took is a legitimate position, but not a legitimate position for an impartial uh, presenter. And um, really, she's only been wrapped on the knuckles about it. Um, uh, so one, I think, has to assume that the BBC it doesn't fulfil its duties and is not prepared to, doesn't take impartiality seriously. That's the most serious aspect of it. Um, and I think it's a, a problem that runs through its political and news coverage and actually also through its cultural coverage to a large extent. Yeah. Uh, if anything, you could say that the cultural coverage is actually sort of almost more insidious, isn't it, in the sense that there are certain assumptions made in drama and comedy um, very much which are along sort of, you know, liberal cultural lines. Yes, and of course, they're unchallenged, whereas sometimes on the political coverage, they are challenged. You know, there's sometimes more than one person in the room, uh, not yeah. always by any means, but, um, but uh, with the culture ones, absolutely. Yes. Um, Rafe, did you, uh, this Panorama programme, just for some of our viewers, could you just explain actually what, what, what the controversy was about? 
Well, the, the Panorama program um, was, an, as you know, is an investigative journalism program of very long standing in the United Kingdom, and it was performing one of its typical um, exposés on you know, scandals within institutions, and on th this scandal was about protective equipment, PPE, and the alleged uh, uh, inability of the government to supply it in, in sufficient quantities uh, throughout the healthcare system. And... Um, Despite being an investigative journalism show, it apparently was unable to find out the fact that each of the people, each person that it interviewed, uh, was or had been a Labour activist. Uh, something which half an hour on the internet would have been able to, uh, you know, be able to find on Google. Uh, this was, you know, revealed by by another investigative journalism website called Guido Forks and. Um, uh, it seems, you know, unconscionable that they didn't know this, uh, and yet, again, BBC guidelines state that uh, any affiliation that a person has has to be revealed, there has to be transparency. So either the BBC, BBC's flagship yeah. investigative show didn't know that these people had this, or they were deliberately hiding the fact, either one of which is, is a damning statement about the programme and, and you know, the editorial policies. Yes. Um, Charles, you've written about the BBC for years and years. Um, do you think that it's something uh, qualitatively different about it now. I mean, uh, compared to maybe when you first wrote about BBC bias, do you think it is more overt than maybe when you first talked about yes, it? Yes, I think, I, think I think it's on a continuum. I don't think it's suddenly gone from a very good situation to a very bad one. I think it's gone from a bad situation to a very bad one. Um, but uh, I think the culture has shifted so that... Um, Part of what the left is trying to do is to make it um, fundamentally immoral to have a different view on certain questions. Um, and that reflect is reflected in what in the bias we see. So that uh, the BBC has decided, for example, that on all climate change questions, uh, it's not right. It's actually wrong, sort of unethical and unsuitable for the BBC to put contrary views. So um, uh, you are being excluded simply because you don't accept the the dominant orthodoxy and that is a tremendous permission to editorializing because the the distinction between the opinion and fact is in, is is heavily elided uh, and that's also true um of quite a lot of coverage of brexit i think and certainly anything that can be tagged with the name of racism no matter how remote the claim um uh, and that allowed that came into brexit because if you could, if you could um, assert that any objection to immigration was racist, then that gave you the right to exclude it from the conversation. And I think this happens continuously, um, uh, and um, it's pervasive. Because it's not just the BBC, you see it more and more at universities, for example. Um, it also means that if you think that way, uh, it comes to raise a very important point about not doing due diligence. All you need to work out is who's on the right, quote, right side. Yeah. And then you put yeah. them on and you don't ask the difficult questions. So it's absolutely commonplace now for government ministers, particularly wow. if it's a Tory government, to be um, you know, harangued and lots of things brought up about their record and all that sort of thing. Whereas that sort of work will not have been done on the average spokesman wow. from an NGO or, or indeed an, a spokesman for the Chinese Communist Party, um, who might be not coming on, sailing under the name of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and so um, the whole idea is often people like um, President Trump are often accused and often rightly and um, the Internet, too, of making up things and just pushing them out. But I think 
similar claims can be made about the BBC in the sense that it's a a sort of moral world view, like a pseudo religion, which is just preached and preached and preached, um, and therefore um, uh, a, a, the normal ideas of objectivity on which the BBC is supposedly founded uh, cease to apply. That's exactly right. And of course, commentators will always be de uh, described as a right wing commentator, but very rarely will one see someone described as a left wing commentator, uh, as if they are beyond the pale if you, if you are on the right. Uh, and uh, certainly, as, as you know, Charles Wolfe very, very um, correctly pointed out last year, the Im imbalance on question time, uh, where Spiked Online, another website, did a report showing that there was a two-to-one bias between 2017 and 2019. There yes. were 300 uh, people who were Remainers on the panel uh, at that during those periods, and there was uh, only about 150 people who were actually Leavers. Um, but this goes to the larger point of the BBC wants to see itself as the state broadcaster, and uh, yet at the same time, and it's funded nationally, and yet it's failing to serve the, or meet the needs and requirements of over 50% of the population, as we've seen in terms of the election of the Tories, and indeed with Brexit. Uh, and part of the problem there, I think, it, it really comes down to the fact that the BBC always had a policy of impartiality in its news department. That was enforced with an iron rod, and the BBC has seen fit in recent years to encourage its news presenters to be seen as personalities and to engage with their audience through social media. Um, so that's where their, in, their, their existing um, liberal bias comes into, seeing, into being. For example, I mean, the BBC consumes more Guardian newspapers than any other newspaper, despite the fact that the Guardian is the nation's least popular newspaper, which shows the imbalance there. And it's very evident on Twitter. If you look through all the news presenters, and I mean, Guido Fawkes did another survey on this, 96% of Emily Makeless's tweets, which were non-neutral, were anti-Boris. Uh, there was only one tweet they could find that was actually in any way pro-Boris. Uh, and and it's lost its position. You know, the mon I'm a royal commentator, so I like to draw an analogy with the royal family. The royal family and the BBC are supposed to be uh, institutions for national unity, impartial, and uh, the royal family, as we know, compared the Queen Mother to the Duchess of Sussex. One figure was right-wing, but, but always uh, had an impartial position. No one ever knew her opinion, and the nation collectively united around this, this figure. Compare that with the Duchess of Sussex, immediately divisive. And we're seeing that with our news presenters. I never knew what Alistair Burnett's position was, or a, or a Terry Wogan, or anyone like that. And yet we all know the opinions of our current uh, news presenters, and that's automatically divisive, I think. Do you think... Uh uh, Charles, that the world view that you described earlier, uh, how has that informed the BBC's coverage of the COVID-19 crisis, or has it? Well, I, I think it has um, in two respects. Uh, one is that it's been like the dentist looking for the hole, um, which is something a dentist must do, but I'm not sure that the BBC has to be a dentist all the time. And I think particularly at a time of national crisis, the BBC probably ought to have, it's, it should, certainly shouldn't be hiding bad news, but it should be trying to be encouraging and unifying, uh, rather like in a war. It should be, therefore, less inclined than usual to um, go for accusation and more inclined to cover things calmly. And I think the opposite um, has, has been the case. Um, I also think that this double standard about how it interviews people is very, very marked. So um, if you, if it talks to a doctor or a nurse uh, or possibly even a trade union leader in the nursing or doctor 
health service line, um, or if it talks to um, a head teacher about who says that uh, children shouldn't return to school or something like that, such people and also scientists will be treated with a deference which is not accorded to elected politicians and particularly not to conservative elected politicians. And uh, the ministers are sort of monstered by the interviewers and the others are treated more politely, which on the whole is a good thing, but sometimes they're let off very easily and their, their remarks are not challenged. Um, it's also true in, on the world coverage of COVID, I think, that um, you would think from following the BBC's coverage that um, the worst people in the world are uh, Bolsonaro and Trump. Um, I, I don't think either Bolsonaro or Trump have covered themselves with glory uh, in the COVID crisis, but I also do not think that they are the sort of deep cause or even the great the super spreaders of, of the whole thing. Um, and really the scrutiny, which is is so marked because it isn't there, is of China. Yes. And, yes. you know, one of the things that a, the British Broadcasting Corporation has the money to do is have really proper coverage of China. I've seen almost nothing. I've seen some quite good stuff from Hong Kong. I've seen almost nothing from Beijing, which tries to examine what's going on in the Chinese Communist Party, what is, what's the power struggle, what's Xi Jinping trying to do, what is the Belt and Road Initiative, why is it that they seem to have got 130 UN member states in their pocket, and so on. What's happening with the Wealth uh, World Health Organization and, and the Chinese and so on. Um, it's, it's not just the bias, it's the sheer lack of information and analysis, which is really marked. And I noticed that it's expected of correspondents that they don't give you very much information analysis and they do what what they're encouraged to do is to do a sort of summing up all the time um where and certain phrases come on all the time like um you know and people are still waiting for answers or something like that to, to show that they're on the side of a, of, of a victim um it's just not nearly nearly informative enough I think there was actually a change in policy, was there not? I think when John Burt was at the BBC, which which gave rise, therefore, to this sort of commentary side of things. In other words, you had the, the editor of the particular area, sort of, as you say, summing up. It's almost impossible, is it not, uh, you know, not to be, you know, partial in that situation. So uh, Yes, but to be, to be fair to Burt, I think... Um, he was actually trying quite sincerely to make it more like an expert telling you things. Right. Um, he wasn't trying to skew it in a political manner, but you're right that what's happened is that you get a more sort of smart-ass commentary. I mean, if you look at um, uh, Lara Kunzberg or Norman Smith um, or even Nick Robinson, though he's, that's not his job anymore, they like to give a sort of sign-off on everything, which is their verdict on the situation. Yes. And that yes. seems to be considered more important than telling you what's actually happening. Yes. And of course, we're now into our third month of, of dealing with coronavirus and uh, there has been wall-to-wall -wall news coverage. So there's ample opportunity to actually have wider reports and investigations and debates and discussions on key issues regarding COVID, which aren't simply being ha had. Uh, there are so many leading scientists and doctors who you have to go onto YouTube and find discussions and, and debates there with people, leading figures from the WHO or even this, the Swedish epide epidemiologists who've been all, you know, proposing this and radically different, different approach. And yet the BBC seemed to be 
scared or shy of approaching these things, even when you have people like the Oxford-based you know, research units who were the ones whose modelling the government was following until Neil Ferguson actually came out with his own Imperial College. They've been mysteriously disappeared from the BBC as well. And I think it's a huge failing to actually you know, not only provide some sort of scrutiny and opposition to what the government's doing, but to actually widen the discussion and debate. Uh, the leading German virologists who've come out and shown how, how low the fatality rate is compared to what has, has been broadcast, they're, they're being excluded from the BBC, and yet they'll be found in newspapers uh, being, being reported. I think that that's a, that's a, that's a terrible slight uh, on the part of the BBC. But... Um, Beyond that, I think, really, the BBC also is lacking in its... In, in, well, the hypocrisy is blatant. When you look at the way that it quite rightly held the government to account over 100,000 100, tests that, that the health secretary, Matt Hancock, said uh, per day were, were its goal, it quite rightly scrutinised the, the government on that. And yet just yesterday we saw on Newsnight <laughs> the, uh, the, their policy editor stating that there were more deaths in, the, in England... Uh, yesterday than there were in all of the EU combined, when the FT's fact checker said, well, actually, this ignores the fact that the reporting techniques in, on the continent are very different. And if you were to use Spain's new model for reporting deaths, there were only 20 deaths in England. And yet none of that seems to come through. And it's this worst case scenario type of approach to things, which really, you know, erodes trust in the public. There's a broader question here, isn't there? We are concerned with the BBC mainly because, you know, if you don't pay for it, if you don't pay your license fee, then you know you get fined or you could end up in jail. Actually, um, I, I understand that the uh, I think the non-payment of the license fee is the second or even maybe the first main reason for women being in the criminal justice system, which is extraordinary. Um, but there's a wider thing here. There was a poll quite recently which showed that the broadcast media, not the print media, the broadcast media has seen a sort of collapse in confidence you know, from the public, something like 29, 30% of people. Uh, you know, this is a, this is a broadcast-wide thing, is it not, Charles? I mean, the BBC, as I said, we, we have to pay for it. I suppose we don't have to watch Sky, but frankly, when I watch Sky, I feel that I'm in an alternate universe sometimes. Yes, uh, you're right, and I think this has driven um, some of the broadcasters a bit crazy, and they think that and it's also because they don't understand social media. So they're very um, preoccupied with how they're going down on social media um, to obviously you need to think about that. But they, they, they somehow take that um, the volume of that as being representative of the whole country, which it isn't. It's not it's not representative of the people who follow social media. And it's even less representative of all the people who don't follow social media. And this means that um, they don't actually quite know what they're supposed to be doing. They're sort of pouring after the things that are hardest to get, like, for example, young viewers, um, which, and they're being, and all the people who pay for them who are old viewers um, are sitting there getting annoyed. And um, yeah. what the most common thing I get from my Telegraph and Spectator readers is plenty, there are plenty of complaints about bias, but even more than that, the most common thing of all is a complaint that I just don't want to hear this anymore. Yeah. I don't want to see it yeah. anymore. I just find yeah. it too... Um, aggressive and miserable and uninformative. And so I'm actually just not going to watch it. I can find out more detailed facts online. Um, I can read magazines or newspapers. Uh, I might pick up a few short bulletins, but essentially I'm not going to put up with this. It's just making me miserable to know and I'm not getting better informed. Yes. 
that is something that we hear more and more. Is it not that basically, if you want to keep your sanity, you basically stay away from it? Well, I mean, all we see on the BBC and across the broadcast media is this assumption that the person being interviewed is a liar and they have to be caught out and there's got to be a gotcha moment. Everyone wants to be a Paxman. Paxman used to be an exception to the rule and now it seems everybody wants to be a Paxman. Now, someone like Andrew Neil, I think, is perfect because he is... We all know that he's right-wing, but that's only visible if you watch him on Twitter. If you see him when he's broadcasting for the BBC, he is faultlessly impartial, and he will give each side equal, an equally tough time. And his style of interviewing is excellent during the run-up to an election, for example, or during conference season. Uh, but <laughs> there is no need to have that style of interrogation year-round through every single news channel and in every interview. That's why this type of forum, where everybody actually has a chance to speak, to elaborate and expand upon their views is far more useful. And if you read the comments under YouTube uh, discussions where you've had controversial columnists, you'll see many people saying, gosh, I actually never liked this person, but now that I've heard them elaborate and expand on their views for 10 minutes, I really enjoyed them. And I, I agree with them. Whereas on the, on the news, you'll only have a 20-second soundbite. Charles, you want to... Yes, I think that's a very good point. But one, one, one thing I, wouldn't, I would add to what Ray's saying is that I actually the whole business about tweeting, if... Um, I actually think Andrew um, Neil shouldn't tweet like that, and nor, and nor should all these other people. Because what's changed is that the performers on the BBC do regard themselves as individual performers. This has been mentioned already, but it's very important, rather than servants of the BBC. So they're always trying to increase their profile, and that includes masses of tweeting. Uh, and they don't exert on those tweets the same discipline as they are supposed to exert, and sometimes do exert on their performances uh, on television. So it's a bit like working for a public service like the BBC ought to be like um, being a clergyman, uh, used to be, where they'd say, if you can't do it in a dog collar, you can't do it. <laughs> in other words, you, you are a, a full-time clergyman. Um, and in the same way, you, you ought to be, if you're a BBC employee, that, that's sort of quite a sacred duty. And it's not regarded as that. So it's a series of ego trips. Um, and that, I think, partly explains the Emily Maitlis performance on Newsnight that we began with, because she she knows she's on a program that very few people watch now, but she is very famous. So what she was able to do was increase her fame uh, riding on the BBC and uncontrolled. Absolutely. No, I, I, my, I, I agree. I agree 100 percent with that. And I certainly wasn't in any way saying that I, I approve of Andrew Neil's tweeting on those matters. But actually, it was part of BBC's deliberate policy. Richard Mosey, the former head of news at the BBC, said that the BBC wanted news presenters to become personalities and to actively engage on social media. But the problem is, once you try to put your personality across on social media, your bias comes through. Now, I happen to side more with Andrew Neil's bias than Emily Maitlis's, so I prefer his tweets. But that's, but that's absolutely correct. And as you were saying, it goes far beyond the news media into the wider culture. For example, who of us knew how Tommy Cooper or Morecambe and Wise would have voted or what their political stance was or Bob Monkhouse? We didn't know. And the whole nation enjoyed those comedians. You could say the same thing for Hugh Grant and Steve Coogan in the 1990s. They were adored by the nation because that was pre-social media. Now we know what their views are, suddenly the nation's divided, and suddenly half the nation, or more than half the nation, can't enjoy those BBC panel shows and comedy programmes. I certainly can't watch Steve Coogan now without thinking constantly that he detests half of the nation and regards them as fools and imbeciles. Well, yes, I think that's a very good point. It's like if you take Have I Got News For You, for example, I, I, I don't really watch it now. 
Partly because, as you say, Rafe, um, I feel that they would disapprove of me. Do you know they would disapprove of my views? Um, and if you, therefore, how can you laugh at somebody when they do that? If I can just draw th two things together, actually, that you said, if you're talking about uh, the fact that we can't watch Tommy Cooper or whatever in the 1970s. Also, uh, Charles, you mentioned how few people watch Newsnight. I mean, basically, does this, we're getting very angry about this, but actually, does it matter anymore? Because you know, 25 million people would have watched the BBC, whatever, in the, in the 1970s, even the 80s. Uh, how many people watch Newsnight? Probably, I think, even less than watch this channel that we're doing. Um, its influence is actually going, isn't it? Isn't this a kind of last final gasp to be relevant, in a way? Uh, I, think, I think that might be so, but it's a long time of dying. Mm -hmm. um, and as long as the um, licence fee system persists the bbc will continue to get a great deal of money um it, it gets um uh, more than three billion pounds a year from the license fee nearly four billion and uh plus some other income that rides on the back of its monopolistic position and um that's not right and um it's not sustainable but it nevertheless uh, people used to say um uh, about the erm i remember um uh, it won't work but my answer to that was, yes, of course it won't work, but that doesn't mean it won't happen. And, um, and, the, um, uh, and this is the true of the, um, uh, the BBC as, as well. The licence fee doesn't work, but it will continue for a long, long time uh, unless the government decides to do something about it. Do you think, well, uh, I mean, it, it, that might be the case. It, it, it's obviously hanging on in there. Uh, what do you think actually should ha happen? Straight question. What do you think? Do you think that the license fee should just simply be scrapped? Um, what do you think, Rafe? As well, what, what do you think of the way forward? Well, I think that uh, you should look. You, there should be a, a proper look at the BBC's stated initial purposes, um, yeah. its charter, with a completely open mind. So one wouldn't say automatically that the license fee should be done away with. Though um, I'm basically against the license fee, but I think you should say, does it fulfil its purposes? Can it still fulfill its purposes in modern times? Is its form of payment the best way of fulfilling its purposes? Are its purposes worth achieving and so on? And then you, you do a sort of real audit of the whole thing. Um, and I think if you did that, you would find that it is in moral and, and intellectual decay and um, mm -hmm. in an unsustainable form of revenue. And therefore you would reform it dramatically. But I think there's a big range of argument one could have between complete abolition of the license fee and uh, radical reform, such as, for example, halving it. Um, uh, you, in other words, I don't think one should immediately settle on, an, uh, on, a, on, a, on a point about how it's paid for without looking at the whole of these questions. Um, I was going to, related to that, I mean, do you think that the BBC actually does as it thinks it does, uh, really have this function of bringing the country together. I'm sure it feels it has done with COVID, um, royal occasions, things like that. You know, it, it tends to think it does. To me, I think the damage it does culturally now outweighs anything, you know, that's remains of those functions. 
I agree, and I'm not, and I'm loath to admit that. You know, in the past on this program, I, I've I've said that I'm a passionate believer in the value of a state broadcaster to be accessible to all people in this country, uh, to be a point for basically for creating a national culture. We have to remember, in the golden age of the BBC, it was actually things like British comedy shows and dramas that formed a sense of British culture and that united the nation. Now, in this era when we have Netflix and so forth, there's no, there's not necessarily a need for that, but there still needs to be a uniquely British product that's being put out there to. Create create uh, a sense of national identity or at least to spread the, the message to people in the, in the country as to what it means to be British and that's no longer being fulfilled by the, by, by the BBC which is a great shame but I still believe that there needs to be someone there to represent free of charge things like royal, royal occasions, national ceremonial occasions. We had VE Day recently, I remember 50, uh, uh, 1995 the celebrations that the BBC covered. That, there's been a huge decline in the quality of that sort of programming. I mean, Sky News is now far better for example with its raw coverage than the BBC is which has endless vox pops you know, as if we need to know what every person and their dog thinks on every issue uh, so I would be in favor of maintaining the BBC in a state funded but in a, in a much slim more slimmed down version more perhaps like the P, like PBS in America and actually review the raw charter as I said before to ensure that it has a clear mandate and it knows what that, and it knows what that is and it is actually impartial Charles do you think that the BBC is basically taken as a whole more of a demoralising force than, if you like, a sort of community force to people? Is it, it, has it been culturally more damaging than not? I think, I, think it is, um, I think it is now more damaging than its benefits. Um, but I don't think, I'm not convinced that it's absolutely irredeemable. I think this is all open to radical thought. Um, and I think, you know, what Rafe is saying uh, makes considerable sense. Um, I don't have a sort of one view about what ought to happen next. What I do think needs to be recognised is two things. One is that it's in a very, very poor way and has drifted very far from where it should be. And the other is that there's a fundamental problem about the licence fee. And at the end of the day, you know, the, the, for, for, all, for all its attempts to, to represent as much diversity as possible, it, it continually fails to represent diversity of opinion. And that needs to be its, 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 its main approach. And there's a new director general that was going to be uh, appointed very soon with the, with, the, with the retirement of Lord Hall. And that'll be a great time to see who they choose. I mean, this could be its last gasp. It knows full well that the writing could be on the wall with his government. And, it's, and it, hopefully the next director general will be one to perhaps, you know, bring the BBC out of the bubble, put it in the north, in the north of England and have editors who are actually drawn from the population that now feel dispossessed. Well, they tried that before, but they just kept on uh, shipping people up from London, if I remember. Well, beyond Salford, yes. <laughs> but... but uh, uh, just finally, uh, I take it then that you don't really watch it very much. What, what do you watch on the whole, if anything, Charles? What, what, you know, what do you watch when you turn on, when you want to see visual images? Uh, I, I, I watch very, very little now. I, um, I listen quite a lot. Right. Um, I right. listen to Radio 4 and Radio 3 quite a lot. Um, and they still have some good things, but they're both worse, considerably worse than they were. Um, I was listening to Radio 3 this afternoon um, and we had a, a, a concert um, and the performer said at the end of it, um, it's been very nice to, in, in, the, in the COVID uh, shutdown, that we can hear the birds and we can see the flowers growing well, fair enough. And then he said, um, uh, uh, and how sad it is that uh, George Floyd um, can't see this. Oh, no. Um, and um, it is indeed very sad that George Floyd uh, can't see it. But 
why is it that everything has to be framed for the for at any one time in the voice of a particular sort of iconic grievance when I'm afraid there are thousands and thousands of people across the world in far more far far worse countries than the United States are being killed uh, every week so um and why do we all have to think in the same way and pick out the same icons and so on it's uh, um this this interferes with with thought and with freedom and with the sort of separateness which is part suppose you're listening to classical music it seems to me what you want to hear is classical music you don't want to hear thoughts about current political events that sort of demarcation seems to have broken down what do you watch if anything you don't have a tv well, do you i don't have a television <laughs> but I, I listen to radio um and uh, certainly in terms of of uh, radio three presenters again i said you know we don't know we, we never knew what alistair burnett's political views were richard baker managed to switch from being a news presenter to being a radio radio three um presenter and certainly no one knew what his views were but um, i do say that I, I like bbc4 a lot so i on the internet i always like to watch bbc documentaries when they're of a non-political nature and those still remain excellent when the, when the topic's right and they've been some recently with two Two chaps on the University Challenge who've been looking at the Industrial Revolution and so forth, and I find I find those sorts of products still very very useful. But you have to pick and choose rather than just turn on the television and hope to find something good. Well, uh, we've we've now got this channel that you can watch. <laughs> so, <laughs> Charles, thank you very very much for joining us uh, today. Thank you, Ray, for that. Um, that's it for Counterculture this week. We shall see you next week. So please do subscribe, won't you? Thank you. Bye.